0: Om sahanavavatu sahano bhunaktu sahaviryam karavavahe teyaspinavadhi tamastu mavidvishavahe Om shanti 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 May the Lord protect us both, the teacher and the taught, together by revealing knowledge. May the Lord protect us both by giving us the results of knowledge May we attain vigour together. Let what we learn, uh, what we study, be invigorating. May we not uh, cavil at each other. Om, peace, peace, peace. So let's just take a quick look at what what we have been doing in Kato Nishant. It starts up this way. Om, Ushanha, Vajashravasa, Sarva, Veda, Samda, Tasya ha natike tanama putra asa. Tum kumaram santam dakshinasu Niyamanasu yamanasu. vivesha somanyata. Pitodaka daka jagdha trina. Dugdha doha ni Ananda namate loka. Tansa gachatita da da. pitaram tata. So we have just seen these four verses, mantras. So it is said in ancient times, there was this pious Vedic Brahmin who performed a major uh, Vedic fire ritual called the Vishwajit Yagya, Yaga. Uh, desirous of results the word ushan means desiring results and we have seen these rituals can were primarily performed for getting something in this life or the next and in this case uh, we know that that particular ritual is meant for you know accumulating enough karmic credit so that you go to get to uh, go to he- heaven you know like frequent flyer miles or something like that you go to get to heaven um, and the speciality of that a particular uh, ritual was that you have to give away everything. So in these rituals, one of the components is at the end of it, the ritwik, the priests who come and perform these rituals for you, you, are, you hire them. Uh, they, you commission them to perform it and you have to give them gifts at the end of it. And in this case, the gifts are literally everything that you own. So this um, pious Brahmin, his name was Vajashravasa, and he had a son, a little boy by the name Nachiketa, who was maybe seven or eight or nine years old. Um, now, he thought, he watched. When he was his little boy, he watched the gifts being taken away by the priests. His father distributed the gifts, and the gifts were being taken away by the priests. Dakshinasu, Niyamanasu, then he, he thought, Inspired by faith. Shraddha vivesha, And this is an important thing which Swami Vivekananda gives a lot of stress on this. This Shraddha, it is foundational to all kinds of higher life. Spiritual life, definitely, but all kinds of higher life, even moral and ethical life. Shraddha literally means faith, confidence. Um, It's defined as astikya buddhi. Astikya buddhi means it is Such a thing is. What I hear about from my teachers and from our elders, what I read about in these texts, I have the faith that there is something to it. Not just very high things like God and Brahman and enlightenment, but values. That it is indeed a wonderful and a great thing to be truthful. Uh, That it is uh, wonderful to be uh, simple and austere, wonderful to be self-controlled, it's great to be considerate of others. So these values, fundamental values, these are um, I believe in them. I believe my life, I should pursue them. This is, uh, this is how to live the, a good and great life is this kind of life. This is not a small thing. And not only that, Another aspect of Shaddha is self-confidence. This is what Swami Vivekananda stressed again and again. Not only these values are important, not only these texts and teachers are right, what they are saying is good and great, I too can do it. I must do it. This is the purpose of my life. Uh, I must be a good and great person and uh, possibly a spiritual person. I must pursue the highest goals of human life. This kind of Faith in oneself. And often, you know, people suffer from issues of self-esteem. They sabotage themselves. Uh, Neither anything great in this life, nor in the next, nor indeed spirituality. Nothing is possible without this Shraddha. Belief in higher values, spiritual possibility, and belief in oneself. Exactly the same thing Krishna scores Arjuna. At the beginning of the Bhagavad Gita, do not give in to this paralysis. You are a great person. Regain your confidence in yourself. You are a great warrior. So in your dharma as a warrior, and then then indeed on spiritual life, I'm going to teach you about, he said all that before teaching about the Atman and Vedanta and all that. Unless one is ready to change, I want higher things in life. I want a better life, a higher, nobler life. And I can do it. I'm ready to try. Please teach me. Without this initial preparation, nothing can come. No good can come. No spiritual path. Why spiritual path? Even counseling and stuff like that will not work for you unless I have this inner willingness to change. So he had this Shraddha, this little boy had it. And he thought, so manyata. What did he think? Look at these gifts my father is giving away. These are absolutely the worst things he owns. Um, he is giving away, so there's a sort of humorous description of cows which have drunk water for the last time, which have eaten grass for the last time, uh, which have been milked for the last time, which cannot give birth to calves. So they are old and dying, probably. Uh, so the, uh, I mean, one interpretation could be that the father gave away everything, and this was the last what he had, and he was giving that away too. But that doesn't fly, because if that was so, then Nachiketa wouldn't have thought these things. He would have just seen his father giving everything away. But he clearly thinks that his father is doing something wrong. Because he feels, if you do this, my father, is going to go to the worlds of sorrow. So the goal is to go to heaven. You firmly believe by performing these rituals and giving the gifts, you have enough good karma to go to heaven after death. Wonderful. Uh, But he will not go to heaven. And he'll go to hell uh, by doing this. And then he goes to his father and he asks. um, So this is the fourth mantra. He said to his father, Father, to whom will you offer me? He spoke to him a second time and a third time. To him the father said, To death I offer you. So the commentator here, Shankaracharya, he uh, writes, so why did he say this? So Shankaracharya helps the story along. He sort of fills in the blanks. You know, so many things I might say. How you might say, how, how do you know the text itself does not say this? So Shankaracharya he fills in the blanks and makes it a more rounded story. So he is uh, say, he's saying, what did Nasiketa think when he saw all this happening? He thought. Um, he says that. Kratu Asam Nimittam Phalam. I'm reading from the commentary of Shankaracharya. He says, My father will get the undesired results. He'll get into trouble by messing up his fire ritual in this way. So what should I do? Maya putrena sata nevaraniyam. So I am his son. I am right here. This is literally what Shankaracharya says. He's Nachiketa is thinking. I am right here maybe I can offer myself and complete the, the ritual. The fire ritual can be completed perfectly by sacrificing myself. I, I want to sacrifice myself for, for my father. And so he goes and asks. So this is the motivation. What Shankaracharya wants to say is that the kid is not being cheeky. and just pointing out your father, dad. He's ready to you know, sacrifice himself. Uh, he's saying you're, what you're doing is wrong. it he get into trouble? Give me away. You can make up. So he goes and asks. And then the father becomes annoyed. Second time, third time. So that's what happens when you ignore little kids. They're persistent. So first time you ignore them they'll come back. They don't get offended and walk away. They'll come back. Second time, third time, fourth time. Until his father loses his temper. And Shankaracharya says as much. What did his father think? This is... Some boy, this is. Nayam becoming furious. The father says, "This is not the, you know, the nature of uh, an innocent child is being, you know, arrogant or whatever." Um, and he said, "I give thee to death." Then what happened? And then Shankaracharya fills in by saying, "That hurt Nachiketa." Uh, he says. Mukta putra ekante chakara. Uh, so, he went to solitude. So, all this is Shankaracharya filling in. The Upanishad doesn't say any of this. The boy went to solitude and he, he sorrowfully thought to himself. What did he think? So, verse number 5. Bahuname mi prathamo, mi madhyama. So, among many, I am the best, he says. Among many, I rank as belonging to the highest. Among many, I rank as belonging to the middling. What purpose can there be of death that my father will get achieved today through me? Some sort of awkward construction, but it's it's literal to the Sanskrit. Basically, he's thinking, why, number one, why is he sending me to death? Because I don't deserve this. I'm a good boy. And so how am I a good boy? Among many, among the students, among many, I'm the first. Maybe in many subjects, I'm the first. In many ways, I'm the best. And in many ways, I'm sort of average in between, implying I'm not the worst in any case. So why is he sending me to death? so, I mean, you shouldn't send me to death. And then he also says, what is the purpose of all of this? And Shankaracharya fills in there by saying, there's no purpose. I understand. My dad is mad at me. This is exactly what Shankaracharya says. The boy understands. There is no purpose, actually, to this. And I know. This just means my father is furious with me. But this, uh, among many, I am the first, and among many, I am middling in between. This is uh, Shaddha, which Swami Vivekananda liked very much, this high self-esteem. Just because my dad scolded me, I'm, I, I don't you know, break down and collapse. We have these new terms these days. You have to validate me. Um, so the teacher or in a, in a, in a job, uh, so if you are the superior or the teacher in a school, you have to continuously provide positive reinforcement and keep validating the child True, that's good but uh, there's a limit to that also uh, and now the opposite is there that the child can hold you uh, responsible for not validating me you are you're criticizing me you're not encouraging me um, here look at najiketa he's robust he says uh, i am a good person doesn't matter whether my dad's mad at me or scolding me that doesn't mean make me a bad person i'm really a good person i'm a look how am i a good person look at my life Among um, so many other kids, I'm the best at certain things. And in many other things, I am sort of average. Nowhere am I the worst. This is a sign of healthy self-esteem. If I say I'm I'm the best at everything, that's arrogance. Or that's even like megalomania. But the idea that I have done quite well in my life, and uh, there are things I could have done better, there are things I've done just about as well as everybody else, and that's fine. That shows I'm okay, I'm good. When we were management students, we had this subject which I liked a lot. It's called transactional analysis. In those days, it was very popular. You could go to any bookshop and you would see, I'm okay, you're okay, and all of that. So I learned it from a really good expert. Uh, he was a Jesuit priest, actually. And uh, he taught us wonderfully. I really. Uh, the, but the basic idea there is. The life positions that we take with each other um, is the worst is I'm not okay, you are not okay. That means I think badly about myself and I also think badly about others. People are, you can have a checklist. They are mean, they are selfish, they are ignorant, they are um, whatever. I think badly about others and I think badly about myself. I'm a loser, I'm a failure, I'm not as good as that other kid. I'm not as intelligent or as athletic or as pretty. All these things, I'm thinking about myself or as popular. And it's a huge issue. Uh, Isn't it going on right now? I think uh, uh, in the hearings, the Facebook uh, whistleblower hearings, uh, one of the things she was mentioning that it seems Facebook knew it was uh, uh, toxic for teenagers. And uh, so it's things like that. So this is one kind, I am not okay, you are not okay. And this is the worst position. And the extreme of this position is the psychopathology, you know, where people go out and shoot other people and then kill themselves. So you see, this is the extreme. It's so bad, I have to kill others. And I'm so bad, I have to die. So this is the worst position. The other position is also, there are two other positions possible. I'm not okay, but you are okay. That's the second position. So this leads to inferiority complexes. And children generally start off that way. It's inevitable. When you're a little uh, kid and you're surrounded by adults, they seem okay. That that means they're powerful, they're knowledgeable, and you are dependent on them. And I seem less capable than them. But very soon you have to come out of that. As you grow up, that's all, that's what growing up about. And then the other one is the, uh, I am okay, you are not okay. This leads to a superiority complex, leads to arrogance and misbehavior with others. Um, Sometimes people in positions of power, they have this looking down on others. So this is is also unhealthy. And the best position is, I am okay, you are okay. And the idea of this whole thing was everybody should aspire to this, no matter who you are, wherever you are, spiritual, not spiritual, uh, in an organization, in a family, uh, by yourself, wherever you are, in whatever situation you are, the position to aspire to is, I'm okay, you are okay. I have respect for you. Genuinely, I respect for myself too. So this, is, this was the basic idea of, uh, well, this sounds like pop psychology, but it was based on very good uh, solid psychology done uh, before uh, this book became popular. Uh, it, uh, so transactional analysis, it has a long history, not so popular these days. And not many people talk about it these days. But look at uh, Nachiketa. He's got this, I'm okay, you're okay position, even as a a kid. Um, I'm in the middle somewhere. Some people are better than me, some people are not. Um, I'm better than some others. And no point do I think there's anything wrong with me. So why is my father doing this? Obviously, he's angry. And then he thinks, Shankaracharya adds this: "Tat pitur ma Let the words of my father not go to waste. Let it not be false. He said it out of anger, but now I have to fulfill it. So you might think that's a bit extreme, but truth was a very high value, and uh, there's so many stories again and again um, in uh, Indian in the Puranas, uh, in the Upanishads themselves, as you see which sets a very high store value on truth. Even here, in this day and age, Sri Ramakrishna says, one spiritual practice in this age of Kali, kali Purusha, he says, one spiritual practice is truth. If you can hold on to that, that purifies, that sets the, uh, that, that prepares you for enlightenment. So truth is the basis for everything good in life. Obviously, ultimately, enlightenment, which we'll all come to later on, but even what his father is aiming for, heaven, I'm going to go to heaven, um, a better future in this life, in the next life, even there, truth is the basis. And Najiketa feels that his father is violating truth, and therefore, he will not get the result he's looking for. And he wants his father to uphold the truth, and is willing to sacrifice himself for that. And therefore, he now tells his father the sixth verse. Before we go ahead, so what's the best disciple, what's the middling disciple, and what's the worst disciple? Uh, This comes from a sub-commentator. So Shankaracharya is the commentator on the Upanishads, Bhashyakara. A sub-commentator called Tikakara, who writes a gloss, is Anandagiri. He wrote sub-commentaries on Shankaracharya's commentaries. So he helpfully supplies the information. Who is the best and who is middling and who is the worst. The best disciple is the one who serves the Guru by understanding the intent of the Guru, even before being commanded. The second, the middling is the one who waits for the command, and the Guru tells him to do something, he does it. And that's, the worst is, who even being told to do something doesn't do it. So that's, that's the worst, the disobedient one. And um, Nachiketa thinks, I'm the best in many cases I've seen. And in some cases, I've seen I'm the middle, but I've never been that other kind. And so why why is my dad mad at me? Um, Then he goes on. He goes back to speak to his father. Verse number six. He goes back to speak to his father. (laughs) Anupashya yatha purve consider successively how your forefathers behaved and consider how others behave now man decays and dies like corn and emerges again like corn so who's this uh, saying it's a little boy and giving a sermon to his dad. So what's his dad like? And Shankaracharya says there that his father is standing full of remorse. So he's adding color to the story. You know, There's nothing mentioned in the original text. Shankaracharya says, Pitaram shoka He spoke to his father. What kind of father? The father was overcome with remorse. Why was he overcome with remorse? What did I say? Thus he was overcome with remorse. What did I utter? Um, So what did he say to his father? Think, father, how your forefathers behaved. So you belong to this noble lineage of Vedic Brahmins, and they have lived this devout life for generation after generation. They have held on to the high values of truth, simplicity, and keeping their word so Ramakrishna gave a tremendous emphasis on this. Monmuk akara, he would say, make your tongue and your mind one. So what I what you're thinking, that's what you should say. What you are saying is what you're thinking. Not duplicitous, that thinking one thing and saying something else. Um, so truth, the importance of holding on to the truth. Watch how your your look look at your tradition, look at your heritage, how they held on to the truth in ancient times. So this is already what? Four or 5,000 years ago. So he's talking about the ancients at that time. And uh, I mean, at this point, let me just mention, eh, whenever I say, so the Upanishads, the way was 5,000 years ago, and I can hear it in my head, people will go, there you go, Swami again. Everything is 5,000 years old for you. Right. But, you know, if you consider even the most conservative dating by modern scholarship, uh, most conservative dating, uh, most, um, you know, Modern scholarship, just a couple of days back, I was listening to a talk by this professor at Oxford University, and she said that, uh, so you can date the Upanishads back to about uh, 1700 BC. So 1700 BC, if, if at all, you can date it. So 1700 BC, but that's still, think about it. That is uh, 1200 years before the Buddha. The Buddha was 2500 years ago. And she said, by the at the least, these Upanishads are more than a thousand years before the Buddha. So when I say five thousand years, I'm saying two thousand five hundred years before the Buddha. So give or take a thousand years here and there. So it's not all that not such a big deal. Anyway, look at the ancients how they behaved, how they held on to ethics in their lives, and um, look at how people behave today. Shankaracharya points out. Um, today, look at good people in society today. What are they doing? How are they upholding values? And then consider what you are doing. Um, so the kid is very direct, actually. He can, so Like many children, he can easily make you feel bad about yourself. <laughs> So look at how people are behaving today. The so holding on to a truth, holding on to even a damaging truth where you lose something. Um, the French philosopher, Foucault, in this last years of his life, he had uh, this, something he gave several lectures on, Therésia. it's a term which means truth-telling, talking basically, but truth-telling. And he says, What is truth-telling? Sun rises in the east, it's not Uh, truth-telling. Or the law of gravity pulls things downwards. that's not truth-telling. Truth-telling is when I tell you something which is damaging to me, for which I pay a price in terms of reputation, money, or whatever. If I can do that, uh, then I told the truth about myself. Um, So that is quite different. Now this truth telling also has another connotation. You know, what I feel about something, what my opinion is, what I think about myself, I should fearlessly say that. It's good, nobody should put me down. Um, But notice how this is more difficult to say something. Right now, when you say, speak your truth, what you mean is say something great about yourself and say what you feel about something. But often these feelings about something which we express are often at the cost of others. So I point out how bad other people are and how great I am. And that's, I'm telling my truth. Foucault says, and 3,000 years or 5,000 years before him, Nachiketa says, you tell a damaging truth. Tell a truth which, which uh, hurts your worldly prospects. That gives you merit. That gives you the strength of character. Sri Ramakrishna says, in slightly different variation on this, he says in Bengali, Nijer Dosh, a person who can simply confess to one's own faults, you know, just in, in an innocent way, you can tell that, you have to see that that person has character, has something in him. So it's difficult. And he says the ancients did it, and those who are here today, they are also doing it. They are also doing it. What are they not doing? Uh, Shankaracharya writes, They do not speak untruths, even today. You know, about this monk, he's sort of talking about the deterioration of values in Indian society. uh, He put it very poignantly. He said, So, a few generations ago, if a man from the village was called you know, called upon to give false witness, bear false witness against somebody in court. He would say, I can't do that. I have a family. And the the karma is so bad for telling a lie that we would all suffer. Um, uh, I would suffer. I have have children and people who depend on me. We would all suffer if I tell a lie because it's, it's such bad karma. And he says, in the same village today, the monk is saying, today, A man will go happily and tell a lie in court. And if you ask him, why did he do it? He'll say, what can I do? I have a family. (laughs) This is a firm belief in the law of karma, in ethics, in consequence, in moral consequence. That has now been replaced by, I don't know about all that, but I know about the financial consequences. So I have a family. And the rich man bribed me to tell a lie in court. What can I do? I have to take the bribe because I have a family. The same excuse, you see. (laughs) But one is based on a firm belief. This is Shraddha. Without that, morals, ethics are not possible. Even conventional religion is not possible. The kind where you want to be a good person and go to heaven. You won't even believe any of that. I'd rather be a dishonest person and earn extra money now rather than be a good person and tell the truth and remain poor and uh, go to heaven uh, later on, I I won't have faith in that. Who knows? Because I am cheating. Therefore, I think everybody around me is a cheat. And certainly these uh, scriptures and texts and all, maybe they are telling lies also. So, shraddha, astikya buddhi, the firm faith that higher values are real. There is a saying, I don't know the original Sanskrit of this, very beautiful. To the man of truth, his words are like written on rock. To the, the one who's false, his words are like written on flowing water, the difference between the two. Um, there's another beautiful incident, very telling incident in the Bhagavatam, the story of the life of Krishna. So, Vasudeva, Krishna's father and his wife, they were actually related to the, the royal family. The Kamsa, the, you know, the king there was a, who was tyrannical, a really like a big dictator. Uh, he was full of love for his sister and his brother-in-law. And I don't know who said it, maybe in the Bhagavatam itself or somewhere it is said, Look, if a person is without self-control, if a person is unethical, do not depend on the love of such a person. The moment his self-interest is threatened, his love will turn into enmity for you. That's exactly what happened when the prophecy came that the child of your sister will will one day depose you and kill you. He had his sister imprisoned and uh, uh, murdered her children. A person who showed so much love and respect to his sister and uh, sister's husband. It becomes exactly like that. And you could, uh, exactly the opposite. And the Bhagavatam says, or where did I read it? Says that, you can predict it. It, is, it was not unpredictable. You look at the life of that person, what that person is, and you can predict what he's going to do to you one day. Shankaracharya comments, Nacha, Mrisha, Kritwa, By you know, by being by based on untruth, by telling lies or being dishonest, no one ever goes to immortality. That means the highest goal, spiritual goal of freedom from uh, samsara. But another secondary meaning of that immortality is going to heaven. Also, one of the promises of heaven is, you know, those are the realms of the immortals. You live in a heavenly place uh, with the gods this kind of secondary kind of immortality because you'd still come back to the world once your good karma is exhausted. But even that kind of relative secondary immortality also one will not get if one is unethical. Um, People say these things are impossible to practice today. The world is so full of... um, lies and deceptions you can't survive if you're going to be truthful i'm not so sure review after review and especially i was reading uh, stuff on corporate ethics several years back after the enron scandal and all the, the collapse um the one thing that people wanted in corporate life from the managers middle management and higher management was integrity They didn't want you to be smart. They didn't want you to be extra clever. Great, if you can increase shareholder value and all that, ultimately, we want you to be honest with us. So integrity is valued. Uh, But the point here is, yes, with integrity, you will succeed in this life. You will go to heaven afterwards also. Mm -hmm. But if the push comes to shove, if it's a choice between integrity and success, you must choose integrity and truth, even at the, at the cost of remaining poor. He'll it'll, it'll come to that soon. Um, then he gives a beautiful example. Like the corn in the field, such is our life. It's pretty biblical because in the Bible, you get this corn reference, corn of the field reference again and again and again. So like the corn of the field, such is our life. Like the corn of the field, people die, go to death. And like the corn of the field, they're reborn again. What does that mean? Shankaracharya says, Yata sasyamiva Matya ha Patyate Jirno Mriyate with just because, because in this life people are dying all the time. They become jina, they become old and they go diseased and then they die. The bodies die again and again. And dying is not the end of the uh, end of life. You come back again. After death, one again is reborn like the corn of the field. Uh, and so this is not good news. You get to repeat the same stuff again and again. Avir Bhavati, they come, come back again. Avir Bhavati, again. Evam Jeevaloke Kim So in this transient, momentary, temporary life, what's the point of? Uh, you know, abandoning truth and ho- and taking recourse to falsehood. What will you get by committing such terrible karmic sins? Because everything that you get, your life itself will go away very soon. Why not hold on to something that is uh, that is solid, that's eternal? Seems abstract, but it's solid, eternal, which is truth. Hold on to that. Uh, Shankaracharya says, "Pala ya atmanasatyam." Hold on to your truth. A very modern kind of language. Your, your truth. We say your, your truth or my truth. He says, hold on to your truth. Because life is short. Just the opposite of, you know, you live only once. YOLO philosophy. Uh, YOLO philosophy, so I can tell lies, I can do whatever, because you're living only once. Just the opposite. He's saying, because life is short, because everything will go away, hold on to something that is eternal, um, that is eternal. The fact that I told the truth, I did the right thing, that's great. I did not tell the truth, I did the wrong thing, whatever I got out of that, that is temporary, transient. Notice, we are always in favor of being good, always, without without any kind of exception. To make us do something wrong, we need fear or temptation. Either out of anxiety or some kind of temptation, I tell a lie. Is the, you know, Fear of getting caught is too much. It's fear. Given the choice, if things were all right, I would tell the truth. The opposite is not true. Nobody tells a lie, does a wrong thing, just out of the you know the, uh, the purity of heart and goodness of his heart. <laughs> I don't want anything in return. I'm just telling lies unselfishly. I, have, I don't want anything in return. I'm just going to go around do, doing nasty things. I, I, I don't want anything. Nobody ever does that. It's usually we want something, temptation, or we are scared of something, uh, terror, terror or temptation, anxiety or desire. Without these things, we would all all be happy to tell the truth. Is it possible to tell the truth in this society? Um, One professor of corporate ethics here in America, he said, "I'll I'll tell you the truth, Swami if I taught my students to be literally truthful, the businesses would collapse. On the other hand, if I taught them to be manipulative and conniving, the businesses would collapse sooner or later. So I have to show them a middle way. Uh, So don't tell untruths. Don't um, tell outright lies. But don't (laughs) go around... You know, unpalatable truths also, spreading them around, don't do that. You have to take a be sort of uh, uh, common sense. Swami Vivekananda was very clear. He said that society is the best where these ideals can be practiced. The highest ideals, self-control, um, truth, unselfishness. If society and organizations help us to do these things, those organizations and those societies are the best. If it is a struggle, if it is very difficult to hold on to the truth, very difficult to be self-controlled, very difficult to care for others, very difficult to be selfless, then um, there's something wrong with the society, with the organization or the family, whatever. Yeah. Somebody is asking what is the name of the professor? I'm not going to tell you. That's an unpalatable truth. Uncomfortable truth. Yes. Um, Then what happened? So hold on to the truth. We are going to die anyway. Why not hold on to the truth? And notice, you want to go to heaven. It's only by holding on to the truth. Nothing that you get here, all the cows that you manage to save here, <laughs> they are not going to follow you to heaven. So you're going to lose all of that. You're going to get old. You're going to die, Father. And the only way you want to get to heaven, only way you're going to get to heaven is to hold on to the truth. See, you're shooting yourself in the foot by telling a, telling a lie. You are destroying the, the, the traditions of your forefathers. You're setting a bad example to society at present and you're not going to get what you want. So hold on to your truth. Pālaya ātmana satyam. Hold on to your your truth, O Father. And send me to the house of death, because you said so. Send me to the house of death. You see this theme coming again and again. You see Raja Harishchandra, who, who is known for telling the truth, and who suffered terribly, the King Harishchandra, he had to give away his kingdom. It was a test. The gods were putting and the rishis were putting him through a test. And he went through terrible sufferings for that. Um, Ramachandra, Lord Rama himself. So his father had to hold, Dasharatha had to hold on to the truth because of a promise he had given. And because his father tells him to go to the forest in exile, he he does it because he wants to hold on to the, um, he wants to make his father's words come true. Truth is important. Here's a funny story. It comes from, you know, like uh, the oral tradition of pundits. So once um, I was attending this workshop on Nyaya, the Indian system of logic. And there's a school called Navya Nyaya, the neo-logic, the school of Neologic. But Neologic, remember, it's India. So the Neologic is also a thousand years old. It comes from uh, uh, this Tarkkachudamani of Gangesha, who lived about a thousand years ago. So it's an extraordinarily subtle system and complicated system of logic. And we were studying, it was in Calcutta, in the Institute of Culture, a pundit had come. So so the university professors, they wanted to show the university students what a traditional pundit was like. So they got a traditional pundit of uh, Nabyanaya, Anjaneya Shastri, I still remember. So they flew him over from Benares. He stays in Banaras. They flew him over to Calcutta to give a talk. Um, to the university students. I remember they were Jadavpur University students there in that workshop. I was also there. So the Pandit um, was a very interesting character. The day before the talk at the Institute of Culture where I was staying, I saw this uh, rather strange looking gentleman who was wearing a vest, not a shirt, and a, and a dhoti. And I immediately realized this must be the logic, the Pandit of logic. And he was rushing around. He said, Swami, can you give me some water of the Ganga? I said, yes. Um, Are you Anjaneya Shastri, the Pandit? He said, yes, yes, I've come for the... I said, oh, so you've come. I'm so glad you've come to give us a talk on logic. And he said, oh, logic? No, 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 no. I'm not interested in that. That's just an excuse. I want to go to the temple of Kali, uh, (laughs) Dakshineshwar Kali. So this is my my chance to come to Calcutta so I can visit the temple and worship uh, the Divine Mother. So you see the Traditional outlook. Professor is having him over for a workshop. And he says, that's just an excuse. I get a free plane ticket to Calcutta and then I can go to worship uh, Kali. So he comes to the class next day. And uh, he has to speak in Sanskrit because he doesn't know English. So the whole talk was in Sanskrit. I think a little bit of Hindi in between. And I had the feeling that the university students were feeling a little superior to this person who couldn't speak English, maybe. When he started teaching, oh my God, all those old texts, the commentaries and the sub-commentaries and the sub-commentaries, he has it all memorized. He just, it's like a torrent coming out of it. And we were all, we had all handouts. We were all left flipping pages here and then trying to follow him because he was moving so fast and the whole thing was memorized. It was such an impressive demonstration. Uh, People were um, taken aback, they were stunned and uh, then he said look, logic, nyaya should always be studied with Vedanta uh, with the highest teachings of spirituality, that to realize to attain enlightenment is the goal For, to help that you need logic, to study Vedanta, that much, that's the point point." and he could see people were a little skeptical, modern students so we are studying logic as logic I mean who, who wants enlightenment and all that So he said, let me tell you a story. When the Lord Rama was exiled from his kingdom, he went with his wife um, Sita, mother Sita, and his brother Lakshmana to the forest. And then he reaches the ashram of Gautama, the sage Gautama. He reaches the ashram. Now, sage Gautama is the founder of the system of logic. He is the one who has written the Nyaya Sutras. So he is the grandmaster of the Indian system of logic. So he reaches that. Now you can imagine they are workshopping this new thing their master has come up with. It's called logic. They have discovered this thing for the first time, and they are the all the students. You can imagine the novices in the ashram. They're all full of it. That uh, um, what is this wonderful uh, the subject our master has discovered? It's or or invented. It's called logic. Gautama who is himself the writer of this, uh, the sutras of logic, he is the master of logic himself, he notices his, his uh, students' childish enthusiasm for, for the subject he is himself teaching. And to teach them a lesson, he tells Ramachandra, you know, what's, your, uh, what's this problem I hear about? You have been exiled from your kingdom. You are supposed to, you're the crown prince. You are supposed to be crowned the king. Uh, and now you have been thrown out into the forest. It's so unjust why don't you tell your problem to my students and they'll apply logic and come up with a solution to your problems. So Ramchandra tells the whole story, how his father had given his word and then he was tricked into uh, exiling him so that his younger brother can now take the throne. And uh, so he has to go. Today he's he's a beggar. He doesn't have anything. Yesterday he was the crown prince and his wife has chosen to follow him into poverty and hardship and his younger brother is loyal to him. And that's why they are here. and So they decided to do the best they can and live in the forest. So the students get together. They brainstorm, workshop. uh, What do they call it? Focus group. And then they come up with a solution. And they say, Ramchandra, we have got the perfect solution. You go back to Ayodhya, your kingdom. Put your father in, you know, coup. Put your father in jail. And uh, uh, we can clearly see you are qualified to be the king. And it is for the good of the kingdom. It's not for your own sake. Clearly, you'll be a much better king than the, those other people. And so for the good of the kingdom, for the good of many, it's perfectly justified. And what your father and the other people in the court have done is completely unjust. Uh, so just throw them into, into jail. and um, Don't worry about this you know, promise and truth-keeping and all that. Uh, the whole point is to do good to society. So this whole thing... Uh, it, you know, game theory. We have gamed the whole thing and it comes out very well. And Gautama, who knew this would be the result, he smiles and he looks at um, Ramachandra and he asks, well, Lord, what do you think of this new system of thought I have invented? Uh, logic. Ramachandra smiles and he says, shrigalatvam bhaje, he says, those who have mastered this system of thought, uh, in the next life they'll be born as foxes and jackals. <laughs> so this is the the pundits. He's himself a, a pundit of logic, and he's, he told his story to the stunned gathering. You know, don't be over fond of of your logic. There's a purpose to this, and the purpose is higher life of spiritual, ethical life, and spiritual life. Yeah. Logic by itself is guarantees you a rebirth as a fox in the next life. Um, so he said it is a tradition among all of us traditional pandits that Vedanta and logic, they go together. Grammar, logic, um, and textual interpretation, they're all there for helping Vedanta, for, for getting enlightenment. Then he goes to the house of death. The little boy goes to the house of death. Here a skeptic might ask, a logician might ask, how? With this body, how did he go? Where is the house of death? I have no answer to those questions. He just goes to the house of death and that's it. Um, Then what happens? So he reaches the house of death. But um, all this you have to fill up. The story takes an abrupt jump forward. Death is not there. The king of death, Yama. Yama is the king of death. Um, One little side note here on this system, this this idea in Hindu thought. So there are all these gods with small g, and they are in charge of the different powers of nature, of the universe. There's a god in charge of the sun, there's a god in charge of the fire. They are not god. This is what many people find confusing about Hinduism. God with a capital G is one. It's exactly the same as in the monotheistic systems. There is one reality behind all of these just as it is behind all of us. There's one reality, which is the reality of this entire universe, who is the creator, preserver, destroyer of the entire universe, that is God with a capital G. In Vedantic terms, Saguna Brahma. Saguna Brahma. We read in Vedanta Sara, if you remember, precise definition, Maya Upahita Chaitanya, consciousness associated with Maya, pure consciousness associated with Maya, is, um, is, is God. That's only one. That, in Hinduism, you can, you can worship as uh, Vishnu, Shiva. Are they not contradictory? No, they are not contradictory. God is infinite, in a sense formless, and therefore can appear in any number of forms uh, to the devotees. After all, the Hindu, Hindu idea is, Vedantic idea is, it is God alone who is appearing as this universe. If God can appear as you, me, him, and her, and plants, and trees, and, and blue whales, and dolphins, and stars, and quarks, why can't God appear as Vishnu or Shiva or Durga? Why not? So, God can appear in many forms and can be worshipped in many forms and many names. And so, you have this vast technology of worship, of spiritual practice. Vast, a sort of, it's an incredible thing which they have generated, uh, the ancient Hindus. But all through, there are these gods with small Gs. And their gods, they're called, see, gods is the only name they can use, but the actual word is devas. And devas literally mean the bright ones. bright ones. And the bright ones div to shine. The bright ones are beings just like us. We are sort of dark or semi-dark ones. And there are hellish beings which are pretty dark ones. And the devas are the bright ones. They are very uh, sattvic. They have got lots of uh, good karma by which they have reached positions of extraordinary power in this universe. And they will continue to hold sway over these powers until they lose those positions. Because their good karma is exhausted. So there is a God who is in charge of, or Deva. Let's say Deva in charge of Agni. Agni is a Deva. Agni means fire. And there's a Deva who is in charge of Agni. So that Deva is also known as Agni. Um, there is a Deva who is in charge of death. And that, that Deva is known as uh, Vivasvata. Vivasvata is another name of the God of death. So he is in charge of all the dead people and what to do with them and all of that. And they are all powerful Beings in general interested in goodness, but they are not necessarily spiritual. And so some of them are spiritual. This uh, god of death is a very spiritual one uh, and knows the secret of Brahman and all of that. Some of them may not be. They may come back again to worldly life and to get more good karma, to go back to being a deva. All right, so this is the idea. And one of them is the god of death, also known as uh, Vaivasvata. Um, He goes to the God of Death. God of Death is not at home. The God of Death is on tour. You can imagine, God of Death is very busy. The people dying all the time. And uh, so I guess he sometimes sends his minions, but uh, sometimes he himself has to take care of business. So he's out on tour. And Nachiketa reaches that and he's told that he will not go back home. He waited there. I'm sure they offered him food, you know, and he says, it, the Upanishad says he waited without food. So he refused all the, um, the uh, snacks and stuff. And he just waited for Yama to come back home because he, he has been sent by his father to the god of death, not to have snacks or to relax or something, but he has to meet the god of death. So that, So all this is filler. And now the story takes off again. the god of death, comes back home. And somebody, we don't know who, maybe his wife or maybe some his secretary or somebody informs him, there is somebody waiting for you. This is verse number uh, seven. Vaishvanara praviśati atithir brahmano grihan tasyetam shantim kurvanti hara vaiva a Brahmin guest, a a guest has entered the house like fire. For him, they accomplished this kind of propitiation. O oh, death, uh, carry water for him. So a guest, a Brahmin boy, no less, has come to your house and he has not been entertained at all. No, he has not been given food or rest. He's been waiting for you for three days. So, so you must propitiate him, you must serve him. You must um, receive him uh, with all uh, ritual and and you know dignity, and uh, carry water for him, like water and other op- offerings. Oh, death, carry the you know, uh, offer him water refreshments, whatever. nara pravishati. He enters your house like fire. Why does he enter your house like fire? Um, the eighth verse says, "What happens?" if you don't take care of a guest uh, who has entered your house. So notice, it's a story, but so many things are being taught with the story. The importance of Shaddha, the importance of truth, the importance of keeping one's word, the importance of uh, good karma, which comes from looking after other people. So here is the eighth verse. I'll just read it and we'll take questions. Eighth verse says, so what happens if you if a guest enters your house and you don't take care of him Asha pratikshe sangatam sunritam ishta purte putra pashu scha sarvan etad vrinkte purushasya alpamedhaso yasya nashnan vasati brahmano grihe If in anyone's house a brahmana guest abides without food that brahmana destroys hope and expectation The results of holy association and sweet discourse, sacrifices and charities, sons and cattle, all these of that man of little intelligence. So basically all your good karma is lost if you mistreat a guest. All right. We'll go on from that point next time. So now uh, the Lord of Death is going to speak to the little boy and the story really enters, uh, becomes really intense because he offers him Three boons. You stayed here for three nights and you suffered outside my gate. Uh, I'm offering you three boons. And then you see what Nachiketa does. There's more humor there. There's lots of stuff to learn. And finally, there's Vedanta. There's Vedanta at the end of it all. (laughs) We're teaching about Atman. Again, you see the difference between this and the Mandukya Upanishad. (laughs) The Mandukya Upanishad is singularly colorless and humorless. It gets down to business straight away. All right um let me see the questions prabir basu is saying are there different interpretations of this peace mantra um not very different why would you say that um then gaurav says some dualist traditions see the moksha as attaining the planets of the rishta devata correct so not planets exactly, the, the loka. Loka would mean the, the the realm. It's not particularly a planet or anything, but yes. So Gaudiya Vaishnava's goal is to attain Golaka in Vrindavan. Eternally enjoy by having the five types of relationship with Krishna. I think you mentioned in one of classes that these lokas are real. Are you making concession to people who see this world in terms of duality? Uh, is it, lokas are real in what sense? Vedanta has no problem with this locus being real. But what kind of reality would Vedanta, classical Vedanta, give, give to these locus? Uh, the same reality as this world, which is a Vavahadika, transactional reality. Look, a traditional non-dualist, Advaitin, has really no conflict with the dualist. Um, in what sense? We admit everything that we are these jivas, we are caught in samsara, We are everything is being propelled by causality, that is karma, and we are caught here. And uh, to break this cycle, to attain freedom, we need the grace of God. Everything is here is being done by God. We admit the existence of God. We admit the existence of this world and the higher worlds and the lower worlds. We admit the existence of good karma and bad karma. We admit the existence of sentient beings of all kinds, all of us. Uh, all of this is fully admitted. And we admit the efficacy, what the ancient Hindus were most interested in. You non-dualists, you admit that the karma kanda, the rituals we perform, do they work or not? Or in later, and this I'm quoting a sadhu, the traditional uh, ritualistic Hindus be suspicious of the non-dualists. They said, you know, these fellows, do they believe in uh, pilgrimages? Do they believe in uh, puja? Do they believe in the holy Ganga and, and a dip in the, in the holy river? And the sadhu says, Baba, hum sab hai. My dear fellow, we accept everything. Rituals and pilgrimages and a dip in the Ganga. Take as many dips as you want. Um, all of it is accepted. But do you accept that they work? Yes, that they work. Then they lead you to moksha also. Yes, they lead you to moksha also. Moksha in the sense of not coming back to this world, eternally existing in the plane with God. With um, And then there are different kinds of moksha which the Vaishnava schools speak of. Salokya. You stay in the same realm as God. Um, in If you were a Gaudiya Vaishnava, it would be Goloka. If you are another kind of Vaishnava, it would be the um, the Vaikuntha. So you, uh, or if you are a worship of the Divine Mother, Devi Loka. I know this gentleman who has been an American gentleman who has been in uh, Vedanta for many, many years, decades, and uh, a very serious practitioner, very quiet, in uh, word, introverted. And uh, so I asked him, so your goal is, what, what do you think you are going to attain, that liberation, moksha? He said, no, I want to go to Devi and stay and stay in the presence of the Divine Mother, that appeals to me. It was very interesting. So all of these are accepted. So you say, I'm sensing a big but coming after this. But there is a higher reality or a deeper reality, which is the paramarthika, the absolute reality, which is existence consciousness bliss. There is the screen of the movie. There is the waking up from the dream. <laughs> um, so... What you are talking about, we don't contradict it in those. We don't say that, oh, um, the Vaishnava heaven, Vaikuntha does not exist. This world exists, but that does not exist. That's the, that's the materialist. We don't say that. We say in the sense that this world exists, in the sense that you are this limited person, in that sense, there is a god of this universe. And in that sense, there, are also, there is also heaven. All of that is uh, an appearance in the absolute reality that's all we are saying in reality you are that absolute reality that alone is appearing as this world and as you the individual and as the god of this universe and all the heavens so the salokya you go to the heaven and uh, to heaven and stay with god and that is admitted as moksha again at the transactional level devaharika samipya not only you go to heaven you stay close to god you stay on the same neighborhood maybe and then um, there is um, sayujya sarupya. You have the same form as God. Um, then there is uh, sayujya. You have a oneness with God, not in the Vedantic sense. You are merged as if you know, like you take a dip in the river and you hold your breath and stay inside. In that sense, you are still your individuality, but you are submerged in God, as it were. Sayujya, one with God. And all of them, you are enjoying the bliss of the divine presence. And it's so beautiful. Why would we deny that? That's all there. Devaharika, transactional. And just for not for the dualists, for the non-dualists, fine print says that is just that is just the politically correct way of saying false. So that's it. I think Gaura, what he's is saying, after understanding Advaita Vedanta from rereading re Bhagavatam. i find finding conclusions of Bhagavatam, are purely Advaitic. Yes, correct. You'll see many classical Advaitic teachers, they happily study and teach the Bhagavatam. Many. They, have, they see no contradiction at all. It's a beautiful text which beautifully synthesizes, harmoniously synthesizes knowledge and devotion. Correct. I agree entirely. Yes, a beautiful thing Abhijit has mentioned. When you meet Swami Vivekananda, when uh, Josephine McLeod, she says, when I met the Tsar of Russia, she was quite the socialite. So when she met the Tsar of Russia, uh, she said, I felt how great he is and how small I, am, how, how insignificant I am. But when you met Swami Vivekananda, she herself says, when you met Swami Vivekananda, you'd feel how great he is and how great I am. this is a beautiful example I'm an excellent example of I am okay, you are okay. And Swami Vivekananda would inevitably bring anybody who came into contact with him to that level of self-esteem and self-awareness and faith in oneself. Yes. It's the name of Yama. Vaivasvata. Vaivasvata is one Manu and also the name of Yama. Um... Gloria says, was the surrender of Jesus to the crucifixion primarily demonstration of integrity on his part? Um, you could say that regardless of the political and religious implications. I never thought of it that way. As I generally think of it in the sense, the traditional Catholic interpretation that as a sacrifice of, uh, of uh, God, or the God, son of God, which is the manifestation of grace, which basically from a Vedantic perspective is also very understandable that we have this tremendous load of karma on us all the teaching and all of that doesn't seem to ultimately work unless we get a push a help from god and so an avatar is somebody who can do that christ did it and every avatar can do that can help us siddhartha says In mahabharata krishna asked yudhishthira to lie rather be deceiving In order to make Drona stop fighting, Yudhishthira does this and his chariot touches the ground, which I imagine to be a metaphor that he's now a mortal like anyone else. He was following Krishna's advice when he lied. Would that stop him from reaching immortality? No, it wouldn't. But he would still have to suffer the consequences of uh, telling a lie, which he immediately saw that he's just uh, like anybody else. But the Mahavarata and the Ramayana, they are such rich texts. Uh, I was telling somebody that Upanishads, which we are reading now, or the Bhagavad Gita, um, they are very neat texts in the sense that they tell you the philosophy uh, and spiritual practices. But when that Upanishad meets life, Gita meets life, then you have Ramayana and Mahabharata, which are much more messy and complicated texts. And that just shows you life is not going to be as neat as Aparokshanubhuti or Dhrigdrisya Viveka, it's uh, going to be more like Mahabharata or Ramayana. All right, we'll just take a comment from Prabir Bhav and wrap up here. Well, Maharaj, first of all, Pranam, uh, uh, first of all, uh, that, that was a mistake. I, I com- confused it with another mantra. Uh, but I just wanted to tell you about, you were talking about um, this, the highest uh, relationship between guru and uh, Shishya is when the Shishya can, the disciple can actually predict what the guru is uh, thinking. And that's so the best, a, best kind of disciple, there, yes. So there is a talk by Swami Siddharanandaji on Swami Virajanandaji, who he was serving. And he says that he had a very difficult time to satisfying Swami Virajanandaji until he realized that he has to, he has to predict what he wants uh, in, to do. And, and ultimately, he did that. Right, right. It's a was... very beautiful talk that if you look at it's available on YouTube, I think. Yes. Swami Sridharanji yes. speaking about his reminiscences of senior monks on, on Swami Pirajanandaji. So notice, it's not that the guru needs all this. It's just a way of training the disciple. Just a way of training the disciples. Swami Brahmananda once, he would scold his disciples very harshly for small things. And then once he explained why he did that, he said, if you disobey me in small things, one day you will disobey me in big things also, in great things also. The spiritual instructions will not work unless you follow me implicitly. Okay. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ramakrishna Rupa Namastu